today we are talking about memory, right? That's what we decided on? Yes, that's correct. Perfect. Um, My memory serves, I think. That, that is what we agreed on. Good. I was going to make a joke about that, but I decided not to take that opportunity. <laughs> okay. Who was, who's leading this one? That would be me today. Okay. Oh, right. Fun stuff. Okay, Lauren, what did you find? And okay. uh, um, So for memory, I read an article not too long ago about this woman who has this rare condition. It's called highly superior, superior autobiographical memory. It's called HSAM. And I'd never heard of it before. So I started to do a bit more research about it. And apparently there's only 60 to 80 people in the world that have it. Um, it was first discovered in 2006 at the University of California, Irvine. So what this phenomena is, is it's a superior type of autobiographical memory. So it's not episodic. It's not semantic. It's just related to autobiographical memories, things that you've experienced yourself in your own life. Um, and they're the most noted skill in these people is being able to remember a specific day, uh, what, sorry, what day of the week it was, what they did that day. Um, and what was interesting was they are only able to recall days that they've experienced themselves within their own lifespan. So I was born in 96, right? So if I had this, if I had H. Sam, I would probably be able to recall what did I do on June 11th, 2006, right? Mm -hmm. But if you had asked me what day of the week was June 11th, 1992, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. Um, so I thought that was really interesting because I, when I first heard about it, I assumed that every type of their memory was significantly, uh, they had a significant increase for episodic semantic. I thought it pertain to all different types of memory, but it's just autobiographical. Um, Can I ask you a question about this? Yeah. So would this be like every day of the week or um, just a, a heightened ability on certain days because of some kind of emotional salience? Like if you gave any date mm -hmm. in a person's yeah. life, would they be able to say what they did on that date? Mostly. Yes. They yeah. said it was almost every single day. And um, so there was a study I had found, and without getting too much into the logistics of, of the uh, study itself, they measured whether people had HSAM or not. And when they asked these individuals, how did you recall that day? They had two responses. They either said, I just knew, or the second and most common way that they're able to recall something is if you were to ask, what did you do October 29th? 2014. So what they would do is apparently they visualize every year. It's kind of like a Candyland board. Hmm. So 2016 would be green. So their memory goes into that. Every month has a different color encoded with it. So October might be pink. So then they go back into the, the pink, I don't know what you would call it, month we'll say. And then they recall, okay, it's probably the last week of the month. So they zoom into that week and they find a day that's easier to remember. So they might recall Halloween, October 31st, because that's a day that stands out or could be an anniversary. It could be a birthday. They remember that specific day and then they backtrack or move forward if it had been November 2nd, let's say. 
So they kind of build off of that, like, okay, on Halloween, I did this, but what did I do in the week before that? And they're able to remember it, which I thought was really fascinating because I, I thought it was more of a mathematical skill. They were able to just pattern these days and somehow their brains work in ways that most people's don't. Um, but I thought that was, that was very, very interesting. And they just kind of piece it all together. Um, but they said, there's one girl in particular, she said that they don't simply memorize it. They have to be able to recall how they see the day, how they felt that day. They're almost reliving it mm-hmm. when, when they are asked to recall a day. So it's not a simple memory. They use all kinds of senses. Like, how did I feel? Was I sad that day? Was I happy? What, what did I do? They're, they're reliving these experiences over and over again when they recall it. And I thought that was fascinating because I always thought, oh my gosh, how wonderful would that be? That would be amazing. But then you look on the downside in days where, you know, a family member's passed away or you have a breakup or you fail a midterm or something like that. You're, you're reliving trauma over and over again. And I didn't look into whether they have PTSD or not associated with this kind of memory, but I, I think that that would be something that they could look into. Uh-huh. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Um, for memory, generally, they talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the hippocampal region. During mm-hmm. your research reading about this, did you see anything where they had done any kind of like imaging studies or anything like that where this process is going on where it shows you know, what the working brain kind of how it, you know, like a functional MRI to see what's happening while this, this thought process is going on. Um, yes. So there was, um, a study I had found, sorry, I'm just going to go through my notes. I have about 20, 20 Mm -hmm. pages of this. Um, it'll just give me a second to find it, Chris, but I know that they, they had measured a few things in the brain. They measured gray matter, in the brain, whether there was differences between people with HSM, if they had more or less, uh, they measured the same thing with white matter. Um, they looked for structural differences. So, um, whether one area was larger than the other or not, um, let me find it. Sorry. It'll just, so they said that there were, um, structural differences in the temporal, Oh goodness, I'm going to say this wrong. Gyro and temporal pole, gyro, sorry. Yep. Um, anterior insula and the parohippocampal gyro. Um, gyro. Gyrus yeah. or gyro. Sorry. <laughs> um, and they said this can contribute to the autobiographical memory network. So they did notice some differences. Um, they noticed that there was increased white matter and there was increased gray matter. And they said what was interesting about, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the gray matter they used, he said that the gray matter is like a computer and white matter is like all the cords that connect the networks. And they noticed that, sorry? Do you all remember the, what the difference is between gray matter? Like what part of the neurons are gray matter and what part of the neurons are white matter? Does anybody know? Oh, man. (laughs) No, I just remember gray matter is the the one that's required for higher cognitive functions, 
and stuff like that in humans we have more of that but i don't remember exactly what the cells so the gray matter is the cell body mm-hmm. so so and then the white matter are the tracks yeah. so and the tracks yeah. are the the axons so remember the brain is organized so that we're we're in different area like we're the the cell bodies are forming structures within the brain and then their tracks so their groups of axons are exiting that structure and then connecting to other parts of the the brain so that's where the axons are extending out so that the neurotransmitters are being released into other structures so when you're comparing like white matter to gray matter what you see a lot of is the difference between the cell bodies um Mm -hmm which is, you know, that the postsynaptic area where the uh, information, you know, the, the neurotransmitters other are coming in and then the tracks are, which, which is feeding the information forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it, it mentions here as far as structure, it says medial temporal lobe. Yep. It's just from a brain structure. Yep. So the, and then the hippocampus is, is in there. It's part the of the hippocampus yeah. extends from the middle out through to the temporal lobes. Yeah, a lot of my research um, I had to do with or looked at um, damage to the medial temporal lobe, which, of course, hippocampus would be a part of. So um, they looked at specific cases, the third one, HM, and um, how he had damage and how that affected his abilities to recall and stuff. Or there's another, there's another famous case of the pianist, um, forgetting his name. Clive Waring? Yeah, that's it. That's it. And how he could, um, he had a severe case actually because of, um, I think something he contracted, some some strain of um, herpes, I think, back when he was 47. And then after that, he had severe neurodegeneration and on, the only thing he could recall was his wife. And that too, and every time that he would see her, it would be like him seeing her for the first time. Um, yeah, he couldn't recall, he couldn't recall any past events or make new ones. Yeah, sorry, go on, Chris. There is a condition. um, He said he was, like, younger than, say, 60. This person you're talking about? Clive Wearing? Um, The person that you were talking about. Yeah, he was younger than 60 when he had the... Yeah, yeah. Okay, because there is a condition here that's called uh, frontal temporal... Um, dementia, which is the same amount of people apparently are affected by it as dementia, but the age is much younger. They say on average between about 40 to 60 years of age uh, are affected by this this type of dementia, whereas dementia in itself is, is experienced by older individuals. Hmm. So I'm not sure if that was the condition, but this that is one that uh, was talked about quite extensively when I was doing research on this. Hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned that, Chris. I, um, when I was doing my research for this, for HSAM, I came across a video of this one lady, and she's actually one of these 60 to 80 people in the world that have HSAM. Hmm. And she, she had re- uh, stated, you know, the pros and cons of having HSAM. And she mentioned that she thinks that it's important to study it because 
they think that there could be a link between that and Alzheimer's where these individuals, so they said, um, they wonder if people actually forget things or if it's truly, we remember everything, we just can't recall it. So they're wondering if, so she's able to remember everything she says from pretty much the day she was, almost the day she was born. She says she remembers everything being wrapped up in a, in a blanket, being put in a cradle in the hospital. Wow. And she said that, um, yeah, they wonder if people ever forget things or if it's simply just an inability to retrieve long-term memories. And that maybe we all have this, this maybe these individuals that have HSAM, they're just able to recall it. So she said with Alzheimer's and dementia, uh, the early stages of it, it's their short-term memory that's weakened at first, and they're typically able to keep their long-term memories. But as it progresses, the disease, Alzheimer's or dementia, they start to forget everything. But she said that individuals with HSAM, I didn't know this at all, which is fascinating. They have very, very poor short-term memory. So they're, uh, they only have the advantage with long-term memories, but they, have, they really, really struggle with short-term memories. So they notice the link potentially to Alzheimer's where they have a hard time remembering short-term, but they can remember long-term. So they're saying I that- I wonder on the other- on the other side of that, if they then, as part of that, have the inability to compress memories. Because mm-hmm. I hear oftentimes people who are in um, violent situations or whatnot not being able to recall certain facts or certain things about it because the memory gets compressed because yeah. of the trauma. If these people are remembering everything that's going mm-hmm. on, is that ability to compress memory yeah non-existent for these people yeah i mean i guess forgetting certain things it's almost as a protective barrier to traumatic events right perhaps it's just your mind trying to prevent you from reliving these experiences and these people just don't have that ability as you said um i'm glad that you mentioned that because um I did look at uh, this specific condition as well. I think, I don't know if you've watched the same video or not, but people people with this, uh, I guess, condition who can remember or can recall past events like vividly and clearly, from what I, uh, from, from what I recall, they said a lot of it is um, involuntary. So if they, would, if they were to see a date mm-hmm. uh, flash, uh, it would immediately send them back to Mm-hmm. And they they start recalling everything, reliving it. So I wonder if they're constantly reliving something. Is that the reason why their short term memories might be affected? Because if you're everything, if you're being primed by almost everything around you to be mm-hmm. to for you to recall something that's happened to you in the past on a specific day, I can see how that might affect what's going on. Like being in the moment, that might affect you being in the moment. And if you're not in the moment. Yeah. How could you, how could you truly live? You, yeah. How could you gain that information and put that into your short term memory and then working memory and so on and so forth? Yeah. Now, one thing I wondered, and I, I didn't find anything about it. Perhaps you would know, Mandy, is people with HSAM. So when they say autobiographical memory, they're remembering things that pertains to them, their birthdays, anniversaries, things like that, midterms. Um, I wonder if they're able to recall 
memories that relate to people that are very close to them. So maybe they went out for dinner with a friend and her friend got proposed to, are they able to remember situations that they were in that would be more of a memory for their friend? I don't, I don't know if I worded that properly, but. um. Yeah. So to be honest, I'm not actually very familiar with um, this condition. And so Mm -hmm. I do have a few questions that you might be able to answer uh, based on what you've researched. Like, so they're, um, their memories are typically though of like the events of their day. Like, mm-hmm. so they, they could even remember like what they ate for breakfast, right? Yep. Like, they yeah. can remember, uh, the weather. So that's, that's, uh, was actually one of the tests that they did to test people. They threw mm-hmm. out 10 random days within the span of their life and they had to include as many details as they could. So what did you do? What was the weather? Um, what was your last exam you wrote? How did you do on your neuroscience midterm? And then they ask people to submit proof of that. So whether it's a weather report from that day, a school transcript, um, photographs, things like that. Um, Okay. So, so that makes, that's sort of what I uh, imagined and and what mm -hmm. I know of it be. But um, so then the question is, what do they, what are they not remembering of like in the short-term memory so it it would it's probably um thing because at some point like that events are happening and that has to get converted into some kind of long-term memory so so they probably like so when you're when you said they have no short or they have very uh, poor short-term memory Mm -hmm. like if you ask them like, what does that mean? Like, if you give them a list of numbers and then ask them to recite it in a minute, they don't have that ability, right? Yeah, they had difficulty with that. And um, another one for the short-term memory was recognizing faces. So they did they did a test where they showed them, I think, 10 photos of, of just random people, not celebrities or anybody that people generally know. And they just had to give assign them a random last name. So if I had HM and I saw a male, I'd be like, okay, hey, that's Ryan Smith. Okay. The next woman right. is Tanya Robertson. And then they, they reshowed those photographs right after, and they had mm-hmm. difficulty remembering what names that they had assigned those faces, even though right. they had just done it. So I think they didn't go, at least the articles that I found, they didn't go too into detail about specific um uh, short-term memories that they have difficulty with, but the woman had just said in general, she has difficulty remembering things that have just been told to her. So if she's sitting in a class and she's listening to a lecture, right. But she would be remembering what her professor just said. Yeah. But then you ask her a few weeks later and she's able to recall it. The information or just that she was in the classroom, the information. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought, I thought that was kind of interesting. So I guess a pop quiz, she wouldn't have any advantage, but when it comes to midterms and finals, she would probably do well, right? Cause she's had that time where those, those memories are able to be consolidated. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't want to get too far into that. Um, cause yeah, anyway, so, uh, interesting, but also, you asked a question. I was trying to get to this answer of, you know, whether they would remain, remember other people's 
experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that they would have to be involved in it. Like, so they wouldn't remember the wedding from their friend's perspective, but they would remember the wedding from their perspective if you gave them the date. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess they would have to be there. (laughs) That would make sense. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, it's, yeah, it's very, um, it's very interesting, Mm -hmm. especially in terms of, you know, whether it is about consolidating or how they consolidate the memory. And I think the other point that you brought up was the difference between recall and, you know, when when we say memory in the general, Mm -hmm. like, of lay terms, non-neuroscientists or non-psychologists don't necessarily really think about what remembering means. But as -hmm. psychologists and, you know, budding neuroscientists, we know that it has to do with the storage. You know, how are we storing that memory? You know, is there a problem in storing memory? Um, Is there a problem in retrieving the memory? Is there, Mm -hmm. can we recognize it without being able to verbalize it? And, you know, all of those are nuances to memory. And I'm curious as to if anyone else has, of you three, have had any uh, knowledge or did you find anything in your research that speaks to those differences or anything related to that? Well, um, I did look at different types of memory. So um, depending on what it is, like depending on what the incoming information is, uh, matters how you encode it so if it's something like um let's say lyrics to a song a phone number that you all can always recall those things are usually stored as part of semantic memory um they're just it's hard to or riding a bike or something something like playing piano skills things that are difficult to learn um when you're when you're doing them or when you're initially learning them but once learned they come to you naturally without having to think about it too much and then under semantic memory you can also put priming there um how how you get triggered um through certain words like let's say let's say you you were in your room and you needed a highlighter you know it's downstairs somewhere in the kitchen. I don't know why it's in the kitchen, but it's just there. You go, you go downstairs, you're in the kitchen. You're like, well, I can't remember why I came here. It's only when you come back to your room and then you see your notebook and on your and your desk and everything. And you're like, oh yeah, highlighter. So that would be priming. Um, as far as episodic memory goes, um, not as, I guess, durable. So it would be a conversation that I had with a friend in class or what I ate in the morning. Like I can maybe recall faint details. Like I could recall back to the conversation what the general idea of the conversation was, what we talked about, but I couldn't recall word for word, exact transcript, when what someone said what, so on and so forth. Um, aside from that, um, something interesting that I found, um, and this has to do with, I guess, context matters, is that um, they discovered something recently and they discovered something back in the 1970s. So 1970s, they discovered something called place cells, um, which only activate to specific specific areas or specific facial areas. So they did this with rats where they put them in an arena and every time the rat would, even though 
the rat would be looking around and everything else. When they were in that space, um, those cells would activate. Um, and they also have something which more recently were discovered called time, time cells, um, which have to do with the temporal side of things. So like what time it occurred. And those two play a role in how we recall memories. Yeah. Yeah, which is basically um, the idea that time and space are relevant concepts for for us um, yeah. as individuals, but also then for our brain. That yeah. together, where we are and when we are are two of the important elements of an experience that we that we code um, and then use that as a way of uh, remembering something or uh, retrieving memory. Yeah. And not to deviate from the topic of memory too much, but space-time is actually um, quite important, even just in recalling things or in, in, in terms of physics as well, because every time you're recalling something, you're never just recalling the time or just the place. They always, they always go hand in hand. So if you're ever calling, okay, where I where I was would be here or at at school at five thirty p.m. or something like that. So that is something that I found interesting that not only is space time governed by laws of nature and physics, but also by laws of biology and within our minds. I, One that I don't think we've touched on yet is, um, and forgive me if I'm wrong, is sensory memory. So how you would use the senses to perceive what something is or to remember what something is. Uh, I think an example I can think of is if you went somewhere and you ate something you didn't like, didn't taste very good. You go back there next time and you remember, oh, yeah, we were at this place here and I had this and it was really gross. So you have the memory of that experience from eating that thing and the mm -hmm. sensory, the taste wasn't very good. So you remember it from that standpoint, it could go the other way around as well, or certain places that have a specific smell that you remember that becomes uh, maybe associated to that place specifically. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm glad actually that you mentioned that because um I think this personally for me, smells or scents in general um, always have that rea like triggering reaction. Certain things that I will smell um, will always send me like down memory lane or something. Like if I smell a certain flower, it will always make. Um, I, I would, and that's what I was talking about. Um, how it's associated place and time. I was, I would always think back to a certain time. Like if I smelled a certain perfume or cologne. Um, I might associate that with uh, one of my friends from back in high school and that time um, I had in grade 11 or something to do with like something that's sm that's that smell reminds me of um, a friend's car. So I would always recall back to those times I've had with them going on trips or so on and so forth. Do um, we know, sorry to interrupt, do we know why some people, so I is when you say smells and, and such to remember things. So for myself, hearing things like music I can be taken back to oh yeah I remember going to this concert or they played this at you know a, a party I went to and I remember I had this conversation like 
Do we know why some people's memories are associated with smell? Some people is associated with visual, some is with hearing. Like why some people choose to use certain senses over others when remembering things? Or maybe not choosing, but why? I, I wonder if maybe it's because certain senses are stronger for certain people than are for others. So, for yeah. example, I'll use my own particular situation. Uh, I'm not seeing what's around, so oftentimes I would use sense or touch mm -hmm. as a marker to be able to figure out what something is. Yeah. Or you can smell. I'll give you one big example, actually. Going to school, I can always tell when we're close to school because you can smell the Tim Hortons. <laughs> and I'm yeah. not even kidding. It's two minutes up the road. And you can always tell because it always smells like they're toasting something when you drive by. So as soon as yeah. I smell that, I know exactly where I am. <laughs> I could be sitting in a car. We could have turned 50 times. And as soon as I notice that, I know exactly where we are. Yeah. And it's just using a different scent to be able to. And, and maybe that's a heightened sense for me. So that would be the first thing that I would pick up on instead of something else. Yeah, it would be really interesting actually to see uh, the activation of your place cells, Chris. I had never thought of this before, but I mean, place cells that Ayaz brought up are essentially just like coatings to um, create a, a neural map of where we are in space, and so the place cells will activate. Um, in accordance to how we're moving through a, a space that we're familiar with. And so those aren't, you know, necessarily visual, but they can be, they tend to be visual for the, the animals because that's, they're using visual cues, but mm -hmm. there's no reason to think, I don't know of any studies that have looked at the activation of place cells based on smells. Um, that'd be much harder to do in a laboratory, but basically Chris, what you're saying is that, you you get the awareness and the feeling of familiarity, so knowing where you are and how close you are. So so your place cells would be activated, forming that map, mm -hmm. and like it's you know um, the activity firing, saying like you're here, you're here, you're here. But it's mm -hmm. triggered by the smell as opposed to the visual cues. So ultimately, mm -hmm. the cells that are giving rise to the map that your brain has. Uh, is still activated, but you get a different sensory input to activate them. Now, that's one. The other, another example I can kind of give is, especially if I'm in more familiar places, is you can almost sense things based on, I guess, direction. That's the best way for me to explain. So if I'm in a place that's familiar, um, I can tell okay, so they've turned right, so they've turned left, so they've turned in this direction. So we must be at this point. And I don't know how I do it, but there's times where I turn around and said, are we at such and such? And somebody turns to me and says, how do you know that? <laughs> it, it's just the way that it feels based on movement in this case. Um, something. I'm not, I'm not accurate all the time, but <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's, well, I don't know how exactly, well, this is slightly different from you, Chris, but for me, I obviously um, have an idea of like a, like a visual map in my mind. So let's say 
let's say I had to plot it out or if I had to get to work, let's say I was in a car, someone was driving me to work and I know it's, we're leaving from my house and then we're going to work. So even if I, if my eyes were closed, each turn that they would take and each, yeah, pretty much each, by each turn, I would know exactly where I am and how far away I am. I could tell by that, but that would be because I have a pretty, pretty strong visual map of exactly how to get to work. Like I can map it out in my mind right now, each and every single turn. But um, it's pretty interesting how you do that without like, you know, prior knowledge, like it's all based on sensory information or not, not visual sensory information. Well, it's also based on, um, a, you know, a different uh, way of the brain coding um, our memories. And so um, I don't know if you are, three are familiar with the sort of the amygdala versus hippocampal versus striatal three systems of memories and like hippocampus is is sort of the space um amygdala is sort of coding like the memory or sorry the emotion of the memory and then the striatum is kind of coding our body movements associated with the memory so the striatum is you know really you know in, in a lot of ways in charge of the the routines that we do, like riding a bike, like any of the movements, playing the piano, um, like the mm-hmm. movements that are associated with certain skills that we have, that skill-based memory. And so, uh, Chris, your experience of knowing where you are because your body is moving could be that your striatal system, so that, you know, that memory of how your body moves is just – you is more enhanced um, because mm. you've actually needed to rely on that. Whereas the rest, like the rest of us don't have to rely on how we feel in our body when we're moving through space because we use the visual cues. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much. That and, and that's where, again, I say, I guess if you, if you lack one sense, you use more um, or sometimes it might even be, easier because you have the visual to use the visual but if you were to be driving in a car and close your eyes for some extensive amount of time so that you can't use the visual would it feel different it's funny because i've i think about this a lot lately as i watch my three and a half year old develop a sense of of spatial awareness and he has like an exceptional memory of where we are in space and part of it I think is visual but I think part of it is just this like striatal uh, body movement body kinesthetic memory that he has so that he remembers so he remembers what it feels like to go to one of our friends house he remembers what it feels like to go to a particular store Um, and then I mean his visual input is getting is increasing so it's putting in there but he's had this bodily kinesthetic memory uh, for his whole life, even before his vision was able to be as enhanced as it is now as, as a three and a half year old. Yeah, that's pretty interesting as well. Wow. Um, I'm just curious, what are your, so for you guys, what's your earliest memory that you can recall? Uh, Like, I mean, you don't have to say what it is, but if it's personal, but yeah, see, um, I've been asked this question before, um, and I have a pretty hard time, I would say, organizing my memories. As far like the farther back I go, 
the more track of time I lose, like mm-hmm. I can remember certain things, but I can't put them in order. Like, I don't know which happened first. Um, like I can recall two different memories from my childhood. One of um, badly hurting myself by um, like falling off a bike. And another would be like, no, my mom getting me something um, because I had done something really well in school, something like that. But I can't mm-hmm. recall which one came first. And um, that's true for a lot of them. And then the closer, the closer I get to um, more recent years, I would say anything 2010 onwards, um, it's, it's easier to recall those things. I think it's partly due to um, me moving to Canada as well. Um, that has something to do with it. Um, I know they looked at um, studies where people recall or like what people tend to recall most um, is their teenage or adolescent years. And then they saw there's a, there's a heightened increase in memory. Um, if there's a major change or a major, major shift in life, like moving to a different country. So for my parents, for example, there would be, they would be able to recall their teenage years or their adolescent years really well. And then they would be able to recall um, the years following the move or around that time. Um, But yeah, I don't know why is it that, and professor, maybe you can shed some light there, but I'm not sure why I can't organize my memories um, into like a timeline, the farther back they are. Well, it's interesting because the organization of memories I mean, it is challenging when you don't time lock it to something. And so I, I was struck by Lauren's description of the people with auto, um, highly sensitive autobiographical memory, because when you ask them how they were forming that memory or how they were recalling that memory, and when they started picking the dates and then finding a, a significant point, I realized yeah. that that's how I actually mem- I don't have the detail. I definitely don't have the detail that they remember, but yeah. when I have to go and remember something, it's very easy to me when I start thinking, Oh, well that was, that would have been before this happened um, yeah. or right after that happened, or this was happening at that same time. And so for me, memory started to become much easier when sc- like when I was five, when school started, because that was always a, a time period that then, like that was the year, right? So I remember probably what I was doing at those time periods because it was that grade, and I have a very good idea of who my teacher was and what my classroom looked like, and you know all the way through. So you know when you can time lock it, and so what you were saying, Ayaz, was you time lock it as teenage years when you first moved here or your parents moved here or whatever it was. And then it sort of falls away after that because there's no significant time lock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. Okay. And another thing is that um, I I have that with music. So if I can recall, like usually if I'm recalling something, at any time if I can recall what kind of music I was listening to, it becomes way easier for me to put it all back together now. Okay, well, it's in this order because obviously you know what's what year that song came out so yeah so that's your way of time locking it yeah that's my way of time locking so I guess um up until the years where I wasn't like heavily listening to music on my own or at all times or well pretty much when I didn't have an mp3 or something like that um I have a harder time recalling those years but once um once I had I guess I had an mp3 since then onwards it's slightly easier to recall yeah, because I'll always think, okay, this was happening. What kind of music was I listening to around that time? 
And I'm like, okay, yeah. well, this kind of music. And then I can... I guess it just kind of comes from knowing who you are too, right, Ayaz? Like you mm-hmm. kind of have a general sense as to what kind of music you like, what artists you prefer. So I guess maybe mm-hmm. you're able to just predict memories almost based off of just knowing yourself. Yeah, I'm sure there's a there's an implicit part of it which I don't understand also. So yeah, that may be the underlying part there for sure. Chris, do you have any earliest memories that you want to speak about or that you can think or or can you even remember a first memory? I can again remember times of like childhood and whatnot. Not necessarily again put them all in in order so to speak, Mm -hmm. but from when I was younger and I could probably list you every single teacher that I had from kindergarten all the way up to grade 12, almost. Yeah. Uh, just because school was rather interesting growing up, let's just say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of it is childhood stuff. And then um, really, you know, I guess special events like, when my younger brother was born, obviously, you know, his birthday, but I mean, you remember him from when he was a baby and significant things, I guess you would say. Hmm. So, but yeah. put him again in a time order specifically, some yes, but not all. Chris, um, I'm actually glad you mentioned something about your younger brother, because for me, same, it's the very same. When my younger brother was born, even though we're five years apart, so I was five at the time. I clear. I can remember that really well, or vividly almost. Like I remember what I was wearing that day, or um, uh, like how I had reacted. Um, hey, I'm not that detailed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I guess that was a pretty significant event for me in my life. So yeah, I can recall those things. Mm-hmm. Um, did this is starting to make me wonder about um, memory and like and trauma. Did anybody do any research or come across anything with memory and trauma? Yes. Um, so, well, this was specifically about suppression of memory. So um, they did a they did a few trials with the uh, participants where they gave them two two different words, and then they were they were asked to one group was asked to um, suppress one of the words one or the other word, uh, while they were being primed through a video. So they were watching a video and um, most things in the videos um, had priming effects that, w- that would make them recall that word, whatever those two words were. So what they, what they saw was that the group who was told to suppress, suppress their memories or suppress a certain memory had a harder time um, accumulating or gathering new information or putting information into their working memory or um, their short-term memory, um, partly because I'm assuming because the brain is busy trying to suppress the previous memories. So how that relates to trauma patients or something would be that um, we can see people when they have traumatic events, um, few few weeks or following weeks, they'll have uh, memory lapses. Um, partly because it may be just that they're trying to suppress those bad memories and trying to think about it, which is affecting their memory um, or their day-to-day memory, short-term and working memory. You know what I'm wondering, uh, Mandy? Mm -hmm. Something like 
um, the condition that Lauren was talking about where, you know, they would remember or not remember or even some of these other situations. Would the picture look a little different if it was used painting, uh, sorry, if it was painting used like a, a therapy technique, like something like free association where people are able to just basically let out whatever it is come to mind over a certain period of time in section, like would things come out a little differently? Yeah. So do you mean like when you're trying to retrieve the events of a trauma? Not just specifically trauma related events, but any kind of like memories that might have been suppressed from the past or any kind of stuff like that. Um, Would it change the structure or the amount of information that one would be able to actually remember if something like that was tested? Very likely, because one of the problems with uh, traumatic events, particularly like with sexual assault, for example, so when Mm -hmm. um, someone goes to the police and says, you know, this happened, and the police do their typical interview style, what they do is they usually ask the person to retell the story in a chronological manner. Um, And that is not... um, for for when someone is processing trauma, there seems to be some kind of disconnect in the way they're processing um, the trauma so that it doesn't get processed chronologically um, yeah. in a way that they can then tell it. So a better interview style would be to just offer free association and say, just tell me anything that you can remember um, because then it probably will give more details that are accurate than asking someone to go through chronologically because they just, they just can't. And what actually, when I think it was, I was talking about the space time thing and it made me wonder if part of what might be happening is that, you know, you're, when we're, if something's happening, that's traumatic, we have a good memory of the space, but time changes. Like, you know, time is just relative. And so Mm. if it starts changing and we're coding it where this moment of a trauma, a traumatic event actually feels like an hour when it's technically a minute, mm-hmm. um, that then gets coded differently. Like the temporal cells are firing mm-hmm. at a different rate that's coding this time that feels like an hour, even though like there's no, there's no way of processing technical time, mm-hmm. the, you know? And so then this is like a disconnect between how the, the space and the time together. And so when I'm trying to retell you something and I'm, I'm trying to speak of this minute that lasted an hour in my brain and literally could have been coded as a brain, it's going to be really difficult. But if I'm giving this, given this interview style where just tell me everything you can, then I can give you, I can speak for an hour about this minute because mm-hmm. it was so... Yeah traumatic and that's and those basically those are the issues it's like they have so much detail about certain events but not about the entire thing like they may not remember how they got there Mm -hmm. but then they can speak for an hour about this one minute yeah well and then i I guess too what about things like um if people start having flashbacks or nightmares or whatever i mean it could be one specific thing that happened for a very short period of time because because of the level of trauma associated with it or how damaging it was 
again, same thing as you say, this thing that lasted 30 seconds could be an hour. Yeah. And keep repeating as opposed to everything else. Right. So that's all that they're remembering. And that's all that's flashing back is that one little piece of information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and um, as Professor, you mentioned, time is relative. So then in situations like that, um, your your body or even just your mind is going to overdrive. Fight or flight response is kicking in. And um, it's kind of like, you know, when um, how athletes describe it in, in a specific moment, it feels like a moment is stretched out. They could almost see the ball coming to them in slow motion and that could hit it perfectly. Or they could even react faster than the normal reaction time of a human because that's so built into them. But the point is that the, the moment feels like it's stretched. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a similar concept there as well. Um, and yeah, there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, research and things that are coming to light now, specifically about eyewitness testimonies that have to do with um, um, charging people or incriminating them uh, based on just eyewitness evidence. And um, after, I think. It was, I don't know which country it was, I think U.S. recently, um, they had a recall and they had to do DNA testing for specific people who were imprisoned. And they found something like about 75% of them were actually innocent or were incarcerated um, falsely based on just that. And um, like now we, we, do, we do know from, um, you know, advances in just memory research or in general, like um, how how eyewitness testimonies can't be, or can be, um, what's the word? They can be, they can be asked leading questions, which will end up changing their responses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that brings up the concept of consolidation and reconsolidation, which I think is an important thing for people to recognize about memory, that it's not just that, you know, when something happens, we form a memory and it's there and it's encoded in our brain as it originally happened, but that every time we think about the memory um, or bring that memory up, then it becomes active in our brain, so to speak. And then at that point, it could be interfered with by new information. So, mm -hmm. so that eyewitness testimony example is the, the idea that, you know, I'm watching a car accident and I see a blue car uh, race through a, a traffic light. Um, and then the officer asks me, so how fast was that green car going? And I don't pick up on that, that shift that they said they, that the mistake that they might've said. And then all of a sudden, you know, I put, I sort of reconsolidate that memory. So it goes, goes dormant again and it's gone dormant as a green car instead of a blue car. And I don't pick it up. And then the next time I'm asked about this again, I'm like, I'm convinced it was a green car. I saw a green mm -hmm. car and my memory and my brain has now coded it as a green car. Yeah. But that's not the accurate um, scenario that originally happened. Yeah. The, can also yeah. go back to the, the, the vision discussion that we were having uh, prior to how you actually see things. That blue car might have been a green car, but at the time you were standing right there, the light could have been one way, the light could have been another way. 
and in your mind, oh, yeah, it's blue, it's blue, it's blue. No, it actually wasn't because the sun was going down and it was something completely different. Yep. Like the context that I has brought up earlier, right? Context mm-hmm. um, affects how we, we code things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think they even had done um, studies or, sorry, um, trials with people just to show effects of priming and asking leading questions where people were shown, well, two groups, they were shown the same clip of um, um, car accidents. And then one of them was told, okay, or one of them was asked how fast or how fast was the car going when it hit the other car versus the other group was asked how fast was the car going when it smashed into the other car. And then following weeks when they were asked about it again, the group that was the word that the group, that they use the word smash for even recalled seeing um, broken glass at the scene of the accident when there was none in, in the first place. So the words we use or how we form that question can change how we recall or how we retrieve that information because um, there's a lot of underlying heuristics that we rely on for quick thinking. So those get like they have a play in it in which we don't realize but yeah i think it's important too because um they need like there should be some sort of a reform in how how people are being screened for such things so they're not falsely accused of things they haven't done or people are just falsely incarcerated Mm yeah so much more we can talk about this for sure um I want to, I'm just getting conscious of time here. And so I was wondering, Chris, actually, if you have any studies that you wanted to talk about in particular, because I feel like we haven't necessarily heard um, as much about the research you've done in the last week. So do you have anything you want to share right now? Um, Most of the stuff that I had done was, again, around um, the sort of brain structure part, the hippocampus, and and how the different memories are, are formed and whatnot. Um, so for this one in particular, that mostly was was what it was. And I think I kind of pointed out um, about the, the dementia situation um, and Alzheimer's, and they were talking, you know, how they talk about memory across the lifespan. Mm-hmm. That was mostly what I had read about. Um, you know, I... I think the other stuff, too, that we talked about, I did read about some of the different uh, sensory uh, sensory kind of stuff and the different types of memory that we have based on how they're formed, based on how they're experienced. Okay. So okay. Most yeah. of what I actually read, we've kind of covered in one way or another. Okay, that's good. I, I thought all that was just your knowledge, your existing knowledge. You talked about it so freely that <laughs> I... Uh, or so comfortably that I thought it was just stuff you already knew. So, okay, well, that's good. I want to make sure that uh, you got a chance to say anything. Um, Lauren, was there any other studies that you, like one in particular that you thought you'd share or any nugget that you learned? Um, so I actually found um, another um, rare condition, and it's actually the opposite of HSAM. It's called uh, SDAM. <laughs> and it's severely uh, deficient autobiographical memory. And related to the visuals that we've been discussing, they say that they have a really significant deficit 
uh, specific to episodic memories, especially visuals rather than semantic processes. So I thought that that was, that was interesting where they're, they're better at recalling um, short-term memories, whereas their long-term memories are extremely poor. Hmm. And, and their, their autobiographical memory in specific, like specific, sorry, uh, specifically is really, really impaired. So, I mean, that's something I would, I would go more into. The study was pretty hard to read actually. So I, I kind of went off of uh, the discussion and the abstract they posted. But um, um, I have a question. Was that, um, did they look at the neuroscience of that or was it because of a specific uh, damage to the brain or was this just, yeah, I was just wondering psych- that. yeah or um, was it just psychological uh, deficiency that that's been noticed at this point from what I read um, I mean I didn't really get to the um, MRIs that they did but I think that they had found that there were some deficits in uh, specific brain areas I don't have it written down I'm not okay, really sure cool. why I can come back to you with that but I thought that that was kind of interesting when we were just discussing processing visual information and such. And there actually is a condition where people struggle with that. And it's particularly related to autobiographical memory. So they can't necessarily remember what did my birthday cake look like last year at my birthday party? And what did I, what dress did I wear on new year's Eve or, um, they, they have to rely on other senses to, remember the information and I I think I'm just going through my notes here yeah again I I didn't write everything down but um I I would have to look more into it to make okay to make a Um, a, let me just ask a question here one of the things that they were discussing um is implicit versus versus explicit memory yeah um can you comment on that at all, Mandy, or anybody else? Sort of yeah. how this... Go ahead. Yeah, so just would you, what kind of comments do you want, just like to better explain it? Do you want me, like just to differentiate? Um, yeah, and, and just, just how, you know, because looking at implicit and explicit just generally as, as what it is, like would it be tied into any of the stuff that we've been talking about in terms of like these conditions or how they categorize it? Um, that's a good question in terms of tied in. So, I mean, basically the implicit memory is the memory that we feel like we just have, um, that we, we can't explain um, where it comes from. It's just like, it's become, it's almost like it's been part of us. Uh, so a lot of some examples of that would be like our routine memories. Memories. So the skill-based learning that I talked about earlier, like riding a bike and playing piano, and um, uh-huh. and and also like uh, language. Like you know, we don't remember when we learned a particular word. It's just all become second nature for us. So uh-huh. all of that would be implicit memories. Um, and I would say like for some of the, what Lauren said when she was talking about the highly sensitive autobiographical memory people, for some of them, they just know it. They didn't have, they couldn't be explicit to explain how they knew it. Um, cause the first, cause she said there was two different categories of 
people in terms of how they could explain why they did this. One person, one group just said, I just know. So that would be for them, it was an implicit memory. Um, But if you could explain it, then there's more of an explicit nature to it. Um, Explicit memories are more of the things that we can say this, I, I remember this, I remember this event. So all of episodic memories, declarative memory, all that would be explicit mm-hmm. memory. So I wonder in that case, if there's um, some sort of an overlap between, uh, and, and in the case of a highly sensitive autobiographical memory, if there's an overlap between their implicit and explicit or just their episodic and uh, semantic memories and how that's encoded in their brain. Because for us, or for just regular folk, um, there's a clear distinction of certain things that we have to remember, and or we have to make an effort to remember, or that just gets stored, but it's still explicit based on experiences, whereas certain things are just crystallized once, once we acquired them. Mm-hmm. So maybe... Uh, sorry, go on, Lauren. I mean... It's not necessarily related to every kind of memory, but wouldn't muscle memory come into play where, mm-hmm. um, you know, when, so yesterday I learned how to ski, right. And I had an instructor and, you know, I, I'd never done it before. So right now it would be explicit, right. Where I'm going, okay, this is how I move yep. the poles. This is how I go up the hill, but eventually it gets to the point where, you just know it, right? And that would be based off muscle memory. But for things that aren't necessarily physical, what process is involved where it transitions from being explicit to implicit? Yeah, I mean, it would be, a lot of this is muscle, but you know, when you say muscle memory, when I think about the brain, I'm thinking about the striatum, like the the routines, mm-hmm. the muscle movements, or how our body is moving. Um, it, and then, I mean, language is a lot of that too. Like the words, it's like saying the words in a specific way. Um, you know, a lot of it involves those kind of, it becomes routine, basically. Yeah. Like, so skiing will become routine for you, where you don't have to uh, actively recall the pieces that allow you to ski down the hill. Now, the, the processes, they would be different depending on the person, right? So if you were learning the scheme, Andy, you might take less time for it, for you to just do it without even thinking about it, right? Whereas for me, it could take longer, right? So is it, is, am I correct when I say that the, whatever process is involved depends on the person? For sure. I mean, obviously like everything is individual and, you know, there's, our brains are obviously wired so differently. So, Mm -hmm. you know, some things become more dominant or less dominant for different people. There's probably like, you know, a general, um, there's variance within that. So, so sure. It might be easier for me because I have other memories to draw upon, you know, skiing is similar to skating. And so, you know, because I've skated before, I've already got some of that um, routine muscle striatal memory in place. So, and it's not necessarily that you and I are different. It, it's mm-hmm. just that I have, a, I've got a different history with that. So I've already built up some of this memory, mm-hmm. but in addition to that, there'd still be individual differences. And so, you know, I might have a stronger sense of how my body's moving, let's say, yeah. um, 
Whereas you might be able to visualize how your hands are holding something better. So like, whereas vision is going to be part of it for us, um, body movement might be more salient than for Chris, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. No. So it's, it's just like all of these are different elements that fit into how we learn anything. And it's just a matter of like, what's the profile of this particular brain learning this? Mm -hmm. A lot of it do within sort of the procedural portion of it because, I mean, even in terms of learning stuff in school, for example, in lectures, we could be having a conversation about something and there's a PowerPoint up on the, on the board and whatever, and that's how you learn it. Then you'll have other people who go in and they teach step number one, step number two. Step, and for some people, it's easier to learn the process of the procedure <coughs> excuse me, and remember it more when it's laid out that way than in your, you know, conversation, discussion. Yep. Sort of thing. Definitely. Um, Yeah. I mean, it all gets into, you know, individual differences, which in and of itself, I mean, I think that should be part of any conversation when we're talking about the brain and it's often not. Um, So I think it's a good reminder that, you know, when we talk about things in this podcast, you know, these are, these are general things, but there are going to be individual differences and we each approach something different. So our memory is going to be different. Our, the way exercise affects us is going to be different. The way nutrition affects us is different because our brains have been built slightly differently, even though there are probably Mm -hmm. some general principles that Mm -hmm. they all abide by. So, um, yeah, I think it's a good, a reminder, I'm, I would also love to dive into all of this because I think it also relates to, you know, individual differences in intelligence um, mm-hmm. and learning styles and all those other things. But um, but I'm also conscious of time <laughs> and mm-hmm. we're getting late and I don't want to keep you all too long. So um, any uh, final thoughts or reflections? It doesn't have to be like a study, but, uh, you know, just a final reflection that you want to offer at this point before we close. Um, I'm still waiting for the day when we can see our memories perfectly. That's pretty much it. I think I mentioned that before too, but yeah, I'm waiting for the day we can project our memories directly from our eyes to a wall and watch them. I'm with you on that one. (laughs) Good. Okay. I find it interesting, particularly to, again, look at the, the, the brain structures associated as well as the, the conditions of memory that people can experience. Um, when you think of how vital something like memory is to everyday functioning, mm-hmm. and when that, that is taken away by some form of, of disorder condition, um, and what an impact it can actually have on somebody's everyday life. It's not the nicest thing, but it's very interesting to yeah. see how, what kind of an impact. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Further to that, actually, it'd be interesting to see what kind of research is being done on it. And somewhere down the road, if they find, you know, a way to bypass dementia or bypass any of these other conditions so that people can remain living and active. And I say this in quotes, normal lifestyle. 
Yeah. Whatever normal means. Mm. Yeah, that's a good, good point. Lauren? Um, so I, my final thoughts on this was, I mean, I always thought that having a great memory would be the best thing ever. I'm like, I would love nothing more than to look at a slide in a lecture, almost take a photo of it with my mind. And then when it comes to the midterm, just kind of scroll through it and see the slide. I, I always thought that memory, having a superior memory would be wonderful. But through this research, I learned that it can also be really distressful for people that have experienced traumatic events. So I think in terms of memory, researchers should look at not just how to improve it, but I think that it would almost be important that they they research ways that people can forget traumatic experiences, like things, I mean, soldiers that go overseas and, and come back with PTSD. What can we do? Is there a way that we can erase those terrible traumatic memories so that they don't have to relive them? So I think that studying memory isn't necessarily just trying to get the highest level of memory possible, but we should also look on the opposite end of the spectrum and how can we help people forget things that have happened to them that aren't, aren't good. Um, so I, I don't know if there's any research being done about that, but I, I think that for victims of sexual assault and, and people who have been, I mean, even people who experienced 9-11 and, and terrible, terrible situations, how can we help them? And, and how do we isolate that one memory per se without erasing everything else right so if you're trying to erase you know somebody's memory of being in a car accident how can we focus on that one memory without erasing their memories of having their first child or buying their first home or or acing a midterm you know i i think that that's how big is memory and how can we focus in on certain things and I, I don't know. I don't know. I just think that that's kind of, I think that's really interesting. And I'd never thought about it prior to this. Um, Lauren, I'm just going to do some self-promotion here. Um, specifically, if you're interested in uh, stuff to do with PTSD and how we can work on that. Um, my friend and I actually made a podcast looking at PTSD and other conditions and uh, how we can facilitate things like psychedelics to or in, well psychedelics into therapy if you're interested I'm, I think you can find that on Mandyland because professor had professor is that still up there the um, it, you know what it's not yet and this is okay. a good impetus to get it up there so <laughs> okay. that that's perfect that is a great self-promotion and great segue yeah. if to anyone's that interested check that out please yeah, <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> that's good Okay, well, we will we'll end on that. And that's also um, great because uh, we'll talk about some of that. Whatever, we'll, we'll post that up and we can talk about other stuff. Okay. okay, so you're all good to go off and do some research on marijuana? Yep. Yes. Okay, perfect. So we'll say goodbye. I'm going to stick on because I got to talk with Chris about something, but we'll say mm -hmm. goodbye uh, to, you, to Lauren and Ayaz for now then. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Take care, guys. Enjoy your reading week. Bye. 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 Bye.